Um, this, this week I was, I stumbled upon, uh, I was looking at early church and, and spread of Christianity and just looking through some, some things and illustrations, and I stumbled on um, something that's been going on for a few years, and that is the study of, of Muslim conversion trends. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, we, we hear about kind of Christianity seemingly dying all over the place in the world, and every day there's less and less Christians. And in some places of the world, that's true. But one of the encouraging things about the gospel is that this is a global thing. The Lord is active in the whole world. And so while there are some places in our midst where Christianity seems to be shrinking to some extent, if you look at it in a global sense, there's an explosion of faith happening in various parts of the world. And one of the things that we've been seeing over the past few years and that people have been trying to wrap their heads around is a, a seeming outgrowth of mass conversion of Muslim pockets to Christianity. You, you see this all over the place. If you even look, in 1979, they did a, a census to see how many Christians they would estimate that there are in Iran. Does anybody want to take a guess as to how many Christians existed in Iran in 1979? Don't say two. It's more than two. Three? <laughs> About 500, about 500 Christians in the whole of Iran in 1973. In 2017, that number was 360,000, and it's still growing in our midst. You're seeing this weird trend. Now, is this all over the place? Is the Muslim faith dying? No. But we see this all the time in, in these places that are predominantly Muslim places. All throughout the Middle East, you have these pockets of, of, of Muslims that are mass converting to Christianity. And it's a growing trend. And so you ask yourself, naturally, why? Well, there's a guy by the name of David Garrison, and he uh, is a a PhD from Chicago, and he has uh, all kinds of ties to institutes that do research of of Muslim kind of faith background and and, and all these weavings together and how they come to know Christ. And he's kind of made it his mission to figure out, well, what are the things that are making this happen? Is it really a thing? Yes, it is. And what's making it happen? And there's three things that he figured out are kind of the three major reasons that we're seeing this happen today. Number one, a lot of people are reading the Quran for the first time. Like people that have grown up Muslim their whole lives, they're, they're trans- translated into their dialect, they're able, to, they're able to read it, they get their hands on it. They're reading it with their own eyes for the first time and starting to dissect it, and they're spotting all kinds of inconsistencies and incongruities inside of the Quran. And so within itself, there's just a a kind of a questioning of, is this really what I buy into? And that kind of starts things. The second is that throughout regions that are predominantly Muslim in the world, there's this massive increase of violence and turmoil. And so the people are seeing this violence and saying, this does not seem to line up with what I've been taught. I don't, I don't know what to do with this. Everywhere my faith goes, violence ensues. And so they question their faith in that way and they jump. And the third reason is a bit of an unconventional one and one that he was very, very skeptical of but through research just kept coming up in most cases. Most Muslims he interviewed and talked to that converted to Christianity describe some type of a supernatural dream. The Lord came to them in a dream, revealed himself, it's a part, it's, it's a part of their, their story in so many instances that there is this miraculous type of dream that finally pushed them over the threshold. And so they and families around them and these hundreds of people and sometimes thousands at one time are coming to know Christ. Why are we talking about that today? Why are we talking about Muslim conversion as we're looking at the early church? 
I'm convinced that we commit a fatal error when we think about today's church growth you know, strategies, so to say. I think we spend a lot of time dealing with the people that are leaving the faith. How many of us do this? We lament, right? Have you heard this? Well, last year we had this many people. This year we have this many people. Thirteen years ago the church was in its heyday, and now they're leaving. Why are they leaving? And we get in the committee meetings and strategy sessions at church levels and denominational levels and conference levels and all these things, and we're talking about how do we, what do we do about the people that are leaving? And we spend all of our time focused on these people that are leaving. Why I love this guy, and one of the things I think he gets right that we should probably think about, is he's not asking anything about the people that are leaving. He's asking about the people that are coming. When people come to know the Lord in today's culture, in today's day and age, whether it's from a Muslim origin or from a non-faith background, what is it that is actually bringing the people? Why does all of our strategy focus on dealing with those who have left versus looking at those who've come? It's like we're studying our failure rather than our success to try to figure out where to go next. What should we do next? Well, this doesn't work, and this doesn't work. Well, what does work? What is it that draws people to know the Lord? What is it that carries the gospel forth? What is it that causes someone to speak in 3,000 at one time to launch into the early church? What is actually happening? What are they doing? If we as a church have a goal to spread the gospel throughout this area where we're called to be and plant ourselves and serve, well, then we got to ask ourselves, what are we going to do that actually works? Instead of harping on what worked 20, 30 years ago. Because that stuff's not working anymore. Man, I wish it did. I wish we could have full Sunday school classes and burst at the seams and that's how we could do ministry. I really wish it worked. I'm not as excited about it as you think I am, but there is a change in paradigm that is happening. So what is actually working in today's context? Today we're going to look at Acts 2. It's the coming of the Holy Spirit and the launch of the early church. Last week we kind of set up a little bit of the overarching picture of the book of Acts. Today we're really going to dig into what happens when this early church starts, when it just comes into existence. And we're going to look at the whole of chapter 2, but I'm going to throw one important caveat. Today we are going to skip Peter's sermon in Acts 2. And I'm only going to do that under the promise that you go home this week and you on your own time read Peter's sermon. It is an integral part of the account. It's just, it is so long, I will be reading scripture until 11 o'clock before we ever dig into anything. And so I'm going to read up to the sermon and then pick up after the sermon and promise me that you will go home. You have the chance to read what is essentially the first sermon ever preached in the church by Peter. Go home and read it. Promise? Yeah? Promise? Thank you. Okay. I can't skip scripture unless you promise me that you're going to read it later. So we're going <laughs> to look at the Holy Spirit coming and, and, and theologically what's happening there and some of the things it means. And then Peter's sermon happens. We'll skip that for today. Go home and read it on your own. And then after that, we're going to look at what the result of the Holy Spirit coming and that sermon ends up being. What does the church do when they first come to know themselves as the church of Christ. All right. So let's, let's pray and then we'll read together. Father, we thank you for your accounts of Acts. We thank you for the fact that we can read your word and know what it was like when the Holy Spirit that guides us every day first descended upon the early church. 
that we can see what it was like, that we can picture it, that we can stand with those saints of that time and learn from them, that we can learn from their reactions and their responses and from the the things that poured out from that spirit. Lord, be with us this morning as we dig into a text that is hard. It requires us to shift the way we think and focus for your kingdom and your glory. We pray that we might be receptive to doing that, that our ears would hear and our hearts would listen. Love you and we praise you. And all his people said, amen. Let's read. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house they were sitting in. And the divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia? That one I never know how to pronounce. Anybody? Frisia, there you go. Pamphylia, I'll admit when I don't know how to say something in scripture, it's totally fine. Uh, (laughs) Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. Essentially, they're drunk. So the Holy Spirit comes. And there's a few things here that are important. Number one, the first thing we see is this picture of tongues of fire. That come down, and, and, and not only do they come down in, in some kind of grandiose display in the room where they're all spending time together, and it tells you something about the size of the early church. They're in a room together, one room, small, together. But the, the tongues come down, these fiery tongues, and they rest on every single individual being who's there. The whole gathered people of God. has it, It's almost like, like in the Sims game, the little light that's orb that's above each of them. Right? But it's this... this this fiery tongue. And so in scripture, when we see fire throughout the Old Testament, the Lord communicates his presence through fire. We see this all kinds of places, from the burning bush to when they're, when they're walking through the desert and you have the, you know, the fire by night and, and all those things. The, the Lord uses fire to signify his presence. And so the fiery tongues signify that the Lord's presence is with them. And not only that, but it rests on every single individual. So now the Lord's presence goes from being this abstract thing in the room to actually signifying that the presence of God rests individually with every single person that is there. The presence of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, is not this weird uncle that we don't like to deal with because we can't explain him. It's the presence of God with you Not with just us, like up here where there's a cross, but with you. And so the Spirit comes and rests on them in a supernatural way. And the power of the Spirit is poured out. 
And the first result of that is what we see is that they all start to speak, but they can hear each other in one another's languages. I have a friend who experienced this once, traveling to Ethiopia, who carried a whole conversation on with somebody and afterwards walked away and had someone tell them, I didn't know that you knew how to speak Amharic. And she said, what are you talking about? I wasn't speaking Amharic. And they, they realized, like, this, this happened. Imagine being in a place where there's dozens of nationalities and you don't understand a word anyone's saying, and all of a sudden, the French guy speaks and you hear him as English. And then when you speak back, knowing that he doesn't understand a lick of English, they can all, all of a sudden hear what you're saying. There's this, this amazing miracle of the people that are gathered from all the places that I just listed being able to communicate with one another. And when we see this, we have to think back to Genesis 10 and 11. Does anybody remember what happens in Genesis 11? The Tower of Babel, right. The people decide that they are going to build this tower to make a name for themselves. And so the Lord confuses their languages and thus scatters them all over the place. So there was this united people that the Lord intentionally confuses and scatters out to stop them from doing what he doesn't want them to do. And then when we get to Acts 2, what we have here is a reversal of the Tower of Babel. As the Lord miraculously confused languages, here he miraculously unites them so that they once again can go and be scattered, but as a united body to go out into the world. That's what we do. That's the model of church, right? We're all from different neighborhoods. We all work at different jobs, go to different schools. Some of us have very different cultural backgrounds. That's the beauty of the church. Think of who in this building you would hang out with if it weren't for church. Like, how many of these people would be your friends just outside? Probably not that many. The church is what unites. We come together as this scattered group of people with, with sometimes little else in common, but we gather under the umbrella of Christ's unity, and then we scatter out to proclaim his kingdom as we go, as a united front, speaking as one voice, one tribe. The list of nations that we get in Acts 2 even echoes the table of nations in Genesis 10 before the Babel Tower happens. It's this beautiful reversal of the curse of that time that signifies that the Lord is now ready to use his people to do a mighty thing. And so they experience this miracle and they're, they're seeing it together, they're talking to one another, there's this joy, but there's also a confusion. Right? The Lord ascended, he promises the Spirit, they gather, they're praying. It comes, and they now have to figure out, what do we make of this? And so some of them are confused and ask what's going on. Some of them say, you know, we're probably just drunk. <laughs> That's always a good explanation if you can't figure out what you're, what's going on. Just blame it on the booze. But Peter gets up, and the whole of his sermon serves to explain what just happened. It's a recounting of the gospel says, listen, this is what was promised. It said, everybody gather, we should wait, the Spirit will come and he will send us forth and now we are to go be witnesses and, and this church is supposed to start. And the whole crux of his sermon culminates in verse 36 when he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so the response of the people is this. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. 
And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's now talking to all the onlookers who thought they were drunks. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls to the church. They were cut by what Peter was saying. They were cut by the spirit who they just witnessed descending on those people. And 3,000 on, on the first sermon, no pressure to anybody preaching today, <laughs> descend and part, become part of the church. And all of a sudden, it doesn't fit in a single room anymore. The church is a big thing. Best church plant ever. Can you imagine... Like four of you, six of you, whatever, meeting in a house church, and then there's 3,000 the next Sunday, and you got to figure out, what do we even do? Man, I'd love to have that problem. Right? We'd have to have worship in the parking lot, even if it's raining. 3,000. Now, that's considering population of that time, which is less, so if you want to adjust that for inflation, if you will, right? that's way more today. But 3,000 get added. As we continue reading, we get to the practical part. So now that those 3,000 are added, what does the early church actually look like? What is it that they do? The Spirit's here. They have the power. Peter explained it to them. He preached his sermon. All these people came. Now what does it actually look like? And here's where things get fun. <clears throat> and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, not just Sundays, day by day, attending temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What did the early church do that brought and kept all these people? Number one, they were devoted to teaching. Day in and day out, they sought to know and understand the gospel. They weren't content to just hear a sermon once a week for maybe an hour, but all through their lives, as they went about their everyday lives, they immersed themselves in the teaching of the apostles through the scripture that God had given them and through the gospel that they had been witnesses of. They talked about it in their homes. They talked about it with their families. They talked about it with their church family as they gathered together. They were ferocious about knowing the word of God and applying it as they learned. And they never stopped or rested in doing that. That was number one. Number two, they devoted themselves to being in fellowship together. Fellowship is a word that we chuck around in church pretty easily, right? Every church that I've ever been in at least has some kind of fellowship hall. Here we call it heritage. It doesn't really matter what we call it. Um, 
but we have this fellowship hall. And fellowship to us means like the potluck that we have after something or you know, yesterday when we gathered for a drive-in movie and we had popcorn and that's fellowship. Pretty much if you're Presbyterian, if you're gathered and it's not in a sanctuary and there's food, it's fellowship. Right? That's kind of how we think about this thing. But fellowship is a meaningful word. It's, it's, it's a doing of life together. It's a communal living. It's not just a, I'm going to come and sit in my seat that I've sat in for the last 20 years and then I'm going to go home and maybe I'll serve on a committee every once in a while. Fellowship means that they come together and spend significant amounts of time. This is not just your average, occasional, planned church event. I have kids. When it's time for VBS, I'll see you there. No, they, they, they lived life together in community. What's the second thing it says? Is they broke bread together. God's people shared meals. They were in each other's homes, in each other's space, in each other's grill, probably sometimes to an annoying degree. It was like one giant, wacky family. They knew each other's burdens. They could walk through the, the, the sanctuary and see one another and know what each other were, was going through and what they were struggling with, what the burdens were, what the joys were. And when people were rejoicing, they rejoiced together. And when people were filled with sorrow, they were sorrowful together. They lived life as one community. And each person, in order to do that, had to sacrifice. To live authentic Christian community means that you have to give up of yourself. You cannot come here and consume. You cannot pick the church where the music's what you like and the child programs are what you like and that's your thing because this is what feels good to you and you come and you go and you come and you go and maybe every once in a while you learn someone's name. It can't work that way. That's not authentic. That's not what gets 3,000 people to pay attention. I've had churches where I've had better barbecue communities than I've had church communities. People today, if they really want community, instead of walking into church, they'll go to the golf course or the bowling alley or the country club. They lived in authentic community. They got to know each other well, and they had each other over for dinner. Listen, if you would think that hospitality doesn't involve people in your homes, it does. It actually later on in the passage specifically says they broke bread. They were with each other in each other's homes. It wasn't just here. They invited one another. Someone new shows up. Come to dinner. That's how you really get to know people. Think about the people that have been to your house for dinner. Those are the ones you know really well. There's something intimate about eating a meal together in your own space. The first date I ever had with Britta was me cooking dinner at my apartment. I'll never forget that day. We just talked. I got to know her more. There's a beauty to sharing meals and being together. Number four, they prayed together constantly. It was their language. It wasn't just the thing they did before they ate food or right before the sermon in a service. It was this kind of natural way of being to them. They were constantly in prayer in small groups, in large groups, in their homes, with their kids, in the morning, in the evening. Prayer was just a part of the everyday experience of God's people. They were constantly seeking the Lord in prayer. And why do they do that? Because it trains us. There's a pedagogy to prayer. It trains us to listen to what God has to say. 
You ever think, well, I try to pray, but I don't really hear God. It's because it takes practice. Prayer is awkward for me. Well, I don't care if it sounds terrible at first. Get with God and spend time in prayer. And over time, it doesn't become awkward. The first time I picked up a guitar and played it, if I would have said, oh, this is awkward. No. Spend years until eventually it's second nature. Prayer was such an integral part of their lives that it just guided everything. When there was a struggle, when there was something to think through, when there was a decision to be made, when there was joy to give thanks for, they were always constantly in prayer as individuals and as God's people. All the time. Number five. Their lives and things were held in common. The people of God in the early church gave up something that we in our culture treasure so, so much. It's the, the perceived freedom of individualism. They sacrificed parts of their individual selves and desires to the good of the group. Things were held in common. And what was one of the results? They were marked by these intense levels of generosity. We read this and we go, well... I've heard this preached so many times. When people read this passage, if they were selling all their things, they say, well, you don't have to sell all your things. You just, you know, up your tithe by 2%. And no, I, don't th I think we ought to take this serious. Now, am I saying everybody go home now and have a yard sale and just live on the street? No. But I think that there is an element of truth to this. If we as a Christian community care so much about one another that if one of us has and the other has need, our stuff is not ours but it's a means to an end of serving the needs of the community, then yeah, maybe there's some times where we ought to think about selling some stuff that we dearly love and hold on to. Possessions were a means to the welfare of everyone. <clears throat> now don't get me wrong here, because I know people get political with this. I'm not talking about like a welfare state or communism or anything like that. That's not what I'm getting at. This is, this is not a coerced... Governments, you know, the apostles said, all right, you have, you have $100,000, that's mine now. And I'm No, it wasn't this forced, it was a natural desired thing. The people did it on their own volition because the Lord changed their hearts. The difference between the political side and, and the church side is, is the coercion aspect. No, people just were caring about one another. The idea that someone in their midst was struggling to eat while they were having plenty just didn't sit right. And if the gospel truly has transformed your heart, it ought not to sit right with you either. They held all things in common. And people were just selling stuff off. Now, why were they able to faithfully do that? Because I don't know about you. If the Lord called me to sell all my stuff, man, that's a hard ask. I'm not saying that's an easy thing. Why were they able to do that? Because they were part of a community that they knew would care for them. If they sold what they had and ended up being needy themselves, well, they could count on the fact that they would be taken care of by the body. They had the greatest insurance policy ever. The believers that held things in common and cared for one another in a radical way. <clears throat> I really think that that is one of the primary things that drew people to the early church and still draws people today when there is this reckless amount of care for one another, it doesn't look 
the same as the world outside of us. It causes people to take pause and say, wait a minute, there's something happening in that building that I, I don't really know what it is, but I want to be a part of that. There's a generosity there. Those people don't hold on to stuff. They just share things openly. They're, they're willing to be honest and giving, not just of their possessions, but of their time and their talents. I've seen people in that church that are tired, but they give every last bit they have just to help someone else because they needed it. That is what the early church was all about, and that is one of the primary things that drew people to them. And so what do we take away from this early church as it just births in its infancy? As we go on in the book of Acts, we're going to start to look at things of what does the church do when things get tough, when there's struggle and persecution and all these things, and what does it look like to actually leave Jerusalem? But for today, here's some principles that if we did these and nothing else, if we got rid of every ministry and program that this church has and we started with a clean slate and we just did these things, I guarantee you that it would, the gospel in this place would go forth and shape Stowe in a way that you have never seen before. Number one, we have to believe and obey. We have to take the things that God says seriously and be willing to obey. Think about it. These people stayed in Jerusalem because the Lord told them, stay here and wait. What just happened in Jerusalem? Their savior was arrested, swept up by a mob, and murdered on a bloody cross. It's not the place you want to stay as the early church starting out. But they stayed in Jerusalem, of all places. Man, I would have run hightailed out of there so fast. You would have never seen me in Jerusalem again. But what do they do? They obey. We have to obey. Number two, we have to make life as a Christian community an absolute priority in our lives. And that goes to the individual in all of us. Is the flourishing of this place and this community so important to you that you're willing to give up of your time to be a part of it? <clears throat> that you're willing to say, when the church is gathered for various things, I'm going to be there. I'd rather be home watching the game, but this is important. Me being here is part of the puzzle piece that knits this community together. If I'm gone, people notice my absence. There's something missing if I am not here, because the Lord has called you to be part of this body, still Presbyterian Church. When you're not here, you're missed. You're an integral part of what makes up the fabric of the community of Stowe Press. You individually, <clears throat> every single one of you. You've got to be here. It's got to be a priority. You invest in this community. You serve and you help and you walk with people even when you're tired, even when you just want to go home because the grass hasn't been cut in three weeks and you really need to. Definitely not speaking from personal experience right there. <laughs> Rained all day Friday. All right. Number two, or number three, we absolutely have to devote ourselves to prayer. Here's the sad reality. I haven't done this here yet, so I can't harp on Stowe Prez, and I'm not going to. But I will harp on every other church I've ever served at. Every church I've been in at one point or another has decided to have some type of a weekly prayer gathering. Tuesday evening. Sunday evening, Sunday after church, whatever time, doesn't matter. It's the worst attended thing the church has, I've been a part of have ever done. 
you call a prayer meeting in a church of roughly 200 people, if you can get six to show up, you're doing great. We do not prioritize, empathize, and value prayer. We don't. And you might say, well, I pray all the time. Great. We have to be a people that foremost pray. When we wonder what to do, instead of going on Facebook and spouting off, stop, delete your Facebook account, you don't need it, then pray. Instead of jumping at someone and trying to figure out whose fault it is, stop and pray. Ask what the Lord wants you to do in any given situation. When we're looking to see as a church, where should we go next? I don't care what happened 20 years ago. I care about what happens in the next 20 years. Stop and pray. As a people, constantly, daily, when you wake up, when you go to sleep, you should at every moment throughout your day, when you're waking, when you're at work, when you're at your lunch break, when you're driving home, you should be in prayer for your church and for the people in it. How many people, when they get the prayer emails during the week, just delete? Don't do that. Right where you are, stop. Unless you're driving, then you can pull over. Please. Be a people of prayer. Because it's this abstract thing, I know that it's sometimes the last thing that's on our minds, but it is the primary way through the Spirit that the Lord will communicate to his people. He will spur us on as his people and guide us where to go next if we just are willing to get on our knees and spend time in prayer with God. And number four... We have to ask the Lord to pour out the Holy Spirit in this place. I saved that for last, even though it's the most important thing. And the only reason I saved it for last is because it's the one thing that we don't control. Right? We can seek to be more obedient. We can decide to be in prayer more. We can start to give things up. We can be in a community. We can choose to show up. But the Spirit will move as the Spirit moves. And so we pray and ask that the Holy Spirit would pour himself out on this church and that he would lead us as to where to go week in and week out. I have a pastor who I listen to a lot um, down in Texas, and he uses this analogy of the faucet. And it's not a perfect analogy, but I, just, I, li I like it. The Holy Spirit is kind of like standing under a faucet. You can't turn it on. You can't just, you know... All right, spirit. But you can make sure that you're under there so that when the Lord pours out his spirit that you get wet, that you're ready. The things that the, the, the book of Acts in chapter 2 calls us to are things that we do to prepare so that when the spirit comes, when the spirit pours itself out, when he moves and is active in his church, we are ready to be at his disposal. We're willing to say yes. We're not holding on to things that prevent us from moving in the direction that God wants us to move in. We're, we're standing like soldiers at the ready to be deployed whenever the Spirit says, this is where I want you to go, and I'm empowering you and I'm with you. Go, and the Lord will move. That's what the early church did. The Lord said, go be in Jerusalem and pray and wait. They went and prayed and waited. The Lord said, go here. They went there. The Lord said, proclaim me in this way. They got up and proclaimed in this way. The Lord said, worship in these parameters. This is how you are to worship me. And they said, they didn't say, I don't like that. No, they just worshiped him how they were called to worship him. They were faithful and obedient. And when the spirit showed up and moved, num numbers were just jumping up. People were being added. 
because there was something authentic there that people just wanted to be a part of. That is what we are called to as a church, to just be faithful, be in prayer, share our lives together, and people will see that. People will take notice. And the church, not Stowe Prez, because that's not our concern, but the church will grow. The gospel will shape lives. People will come to know him and be cut to the heart, as Acts tells us, by what they see the church doing in the world's midst. Are we willing to go out and do that? Are we willing to say no to anything we might have done before? Because we say, that's ah, not going to work. Are you willing, as you go out today, to live this out when you go to work tomorrow morning, when you go to school? Are we? Ask yourself this week and read Peter's sermon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the fact that you call your church into being. That you are the one who shapes and guides it from the very, very beginning. That you call your people to faithfulness and obedience. And that as they are willing to listen, that your spirit shapes and moves them. We thank you for the witness of the early church. We thank you for the fact that you were active in the lives of your people, that you guided them, that you empowered them, that you loved them as you guide and empower and love us. Lord, we pray as we leave this building that we would be your church, your witnesses, in our town, in our workplaces, in our Judeas, in our Samarias, in our ends of the earth. Be with us as we leave. Shape us, change us, mold us. We love you and praise you. And all his people said...